Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you the second Aliyah, the second section of the Sidra of Noach as part of the OU's Shnayim Mikra project. This second Aliyah, which begins at chapter 7, verse 1 of the book of Genesis, is a bit difficult. The main goal of this section, uh, the reason why it was divided it off, is because it describes the process of loading the ship. That is, it describes the sequence of events after the building of the ark, but before the ship was actually carried away by the floodwaters. The difficulty with this section is that it repeats um, some of the stuff from the first chapter while adding some details that we haven't seen before. Um, and specifically, it, it names animals and numbers that we, we really hadn't differentiated in the first section. It also details uh, or gives more details of how the cataclysm of water would actually take place. But there's also some rep- repetition inside this section, inside this aliyah as well. Um, Noah's age is given twice. The fact that the animals come to the ark is, is mentioned twice. So it, there are some challenges with the structure of the section. I would like to say that it's possible that since the section is trying to give um, moral and religious messages, it may be returning to repeat some of the same information every time it goes on to a a, uh, a new moral or religious message. Of course, identifying exactly where everything starts and stops is not so easy. Notice something very significant in this section compared to the last is that here the name of God is changed from Elohim, which indicates the universal aspect of God, the God who judges all of creation to their detriment. Uh, whereas here we have the name Yudke Vavke in almost all cases, which is the personal, the covenantal name for God, which we usually think as the name of the, uh, of the God which represents the covenant between the Jewish people and, and God. Although it's clear that the name would also apply to any covenantal relationship, in this case between Noah and God, where each one is fulfilling their sides of the covenant. Here God is making sure that Noah will survive, and that this perhaps will be the last cataclysm of its type. And Noah um, has his side of the covenant that he has completed, which is the building of the ship and the process of shepherding in all living things in order to survive the flood. And the Lord said to Noah, Enter you and all your family into the ark, because I have seen, literally it is before me, that you, meaning only you, are righteous in this generation. Now, as we will see, Noah has been building the ark and perhaps gathering animals and plants for a hundred years or more. So perhaps God, and there is some repetition here from what God said about him being righteous in the first section, so perhaps God is not repeating um, uh, verbatim what he meant in the first section, but what he's saying is something new. When I called you to build last section in the first Aliyah, that was because of your righteousness at the time. Now that I've seen that you've actually done the building, you've been loyal to the covenant, I continue to see your, your, that you are righteous, and therefore you, you will come into this Teva and be saved. Perhaps. Uh, it's also possible, and, and it's something that needs to be noted, that whenever it talks about Noah and his family, and his family entering the Teva, it always uses the singular, that Noah entered, or Noah was commanded to enter, and his family comes along with him. Um, I'll get back to that later. I wonder what it says about his 
deservedness of entering the Teva to be saved as opposed to his families. From all the pure animals take seven pairs, male and its mate, and from the non-pure animals take just two, that is a single pair, male and its mate. When the Torah refers to a tahora, a pure animal, that's what we call today a kosher animal, meaning one that chews its cud and has completely split hooves. The seeming problem, of course, is that only the Jews at Sinai were commanded regarding which animals uh, were pure for eating and which ones were were unpure, which ones were tamei and tahor, or as we would say today, which ones are kosher and not kosher. So how does Noah know about these laws which haven't even been given yet? One answer is that he was taught the laws by the Torah and God showed him the future laws of Israel um, so that he would be able to do the right thing. However, a more likely solution is to keep in mind that the Torah is only written in Moses' times. That is, it's being the stories that it's referring to are ancient, but the actual writing of the stories is happening during Moses' time. So, in fact, Noah probably didn't speak uh, uh, Hebrew. He probably spoke Sumerian or some other very ancient language. Um, however, even in those times, it's possible that people understood that there was an inherent difference between animals uh, that were quote-unquote pure and impure, although they probably had some other description for them. The Torah would later prescribe or allow those as being fit on a more spiritual level, that is, the kosher animals being tahor, uh, or fit, or pure, and the unkosher ones being tamay. So Noah probably didn't know them in the language as pure or impure per se, but when Moses is, or God is delivering the story through Moses' vocabulary, so the terminology was changed so that, that the people of the Torah would understand exactly what kind of animals Noah was being asked to overstock. Um, and, th- and that brings us to the next question, of course. We could also ask why so many tahor, so many pure animals were needed. Rashi and Ibn Ezra says it was for Noah's sake. That is, they, because Noah would be required to give thanksgiving sacrifices, and of course those sacrifices would have to be of a type of animal that God would accept, which would become formalized later when the Torah was given. So extra animals will require of those types of sacrificeable uh, animals would be uh, would be required. Extra overstocking was required. However, it could be that God knew that at a later time uh, that he would make a covenant with the people, with the Jewish people, um, who would be allowed to eat only these animals. And therefore, Noah, who is a part of this covenant, the very fact that God talks to him in the name of Yudke Vavke, uh, or Moshe presents God as talking to Noah as Yudke Vavke in the name of Hashem, it shows that Noah is part of the overall process of making the world an appropriate place and a, and, and, and a place that is uh, religiously viable. And therefore Noah, as part of this covenant, is doing his little piece to make sure that happens by overstocking these animals which will be needed in bulk later. He's, he's a part of the process. Another question is why not mention, you know, why in the last chapter didn't we mention the need for seven pairs? Uh, he, we only mentioned single pairs for all animals. There was no differentiation between pure and impure animals. Again, it could also be due to the covenantal personal perspective of this chapter, which needs to deal in the idea of sacrifices, the idea of animals that will be later appropriate on a religious covenantal level, rather than a more universalistic perspective um, that we had in the last chapter, the word Elohim, uh, just indicated God's association with the world in general rather than on a religious nature. I think... Uh, 
the personal nature of this chapter also explains the unusual reference to the animal pairs here, not as male and females, as Zachar and Akeva, but as husband and mate, um, as if the animals are you know, married, which is just a very strange term, so it could indicate that the animals also had to be part of this covenantal process where, uh, not that the animals are, are, are part of a religious experience, but the way we're looking at them in this chapter brings their level up a notch. Uh, although not with birds, as we'll see. So too from the birds of the sky, seven by seven, male and female, here it doesn't say husband and mate, in order to keep their seed, meaning I think not just the birds, but all the previous mentioned, previously mentioned animals, alive all over the face of the earth. It seems that the birds gods are referring to are the kosher ones, the tahor ones, and therefore there are, they go seven by seven, seven pairs, as opposed to the non-tahor ones, like hawks and eagles and vultures and whatnot, which just came in single pairs. Although the, the Torah doesn't state this here, it just mentions the one that are seven pairs, so maybe all the birds were supposed to come in seven, seven pairs, although that's not how Rashi sees it. And the reason for taking the animals now, the reason why the Torah is commanding God, or I'm sorry, that God is commanding Noah to do this now, is as follows. Because in seven more days I will make it rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe out all the things that I made from the surface of the land. The number seven here is significant, that in fact that the rain will start in seven days. Not only because of its connection to the seven pairs of tahor, or pure, or kosher animals, which were mentioned in the previous two verses, but there must be a reason why God is specifically saying that he's going to wait seven days. So if we look at the number seven in the Torah, we'll see that it usually indicates God's absolute control over nature. The seven days of week, the seven cycles of the year, the seven by seven yearly cycle, the circling of Jericho seven times, and on the seventh day, until the walls actually came down, that is, until God was able to make the, not able to, but God showed that he had control over nature and caused the walls to come toppling down. I think um, the fact that seven is an indication of God's control over nature fits very well here as well for obvious reasons. Rashi offers another significance to the number seven, which is that this is the seventh day of mourning for Noah's grandfather, Mitushalach, Methuselah, who, according to the rabbis, was a reasonably righteous fellow. Um, one could say, therefore, that according to this rabbinic opinion, while Mitushalach was not righteous enough to be saved, to be loaded on the boat, or perhaps he wasn't put on the boat not because he wasn't righteous enough, but because as an old man he couldn't help with the recreation of the human species. However, since he was righteous to some extent, um, uh, while he couldn't hitch a ride on the ark, he did not deserve to suffer man's fate and die by the flood. So therefore, if you count up the years, you'll see that this is the year that Metushelach dies. However, um, the, uh, you know, connecting the, the seven days specifically with that is a little bit, I think it's, it's midrashic, it's, it's a little bit out there because um, the sitting of Shiva for seven days is not a Torah law at all. It's a rabbinic law. Um, however, one needs to understand that while the literal meaning of the Midrash may not be meant to be taken literally, 
um, the message of the Midrash is quite important. And, and I think that the Midrash is, is trying to grapple with the question, was there no one else who was even halfway decent living at that time that could have hitched a ride on the ship? Um, and the answer is, it's, it's possible that the answer was no, or it's possible that all the people that were, you know, died of natural causes before God needed to do what he needed to do. Of course, besides the number seven, we have another number which is significant here, which is the 40 of 40 days and 40 nights. We also have the number 40 uh, by the 40 days and 40 nights that Moses spent on the mountain receiving the, the Torah. We have 40 days of Moses asking forgiveness after the tablet was shattered and and the sin of the and, and he needed to ask forgiveness for the sin of the golden calf. We have the 40 years of the desert, which corresponds to the 40 uh, uh, 40 days of the spy mission, which ended in disaster. We have a 40-day mummification of Jacob in Egypt after his death. We have 40 days for Nineveh to repent or be destroyed. We have a 40-year rule of the judges, Devorah, Gidon, uh, Ehud ruled for 80 years, which is two times 40. So if we look at all these cases, I think what becomes evident is that the passing of 40 days or years or whatever period is is necessary, it indicates a completion of one era and a moving on to another era altogether. It indicates that the past has been cleansed, it has been completed, and that a new fresh beginning is now on hand. That's just my guess based on looking at all the context, but I think that's what's happening here, that the 40 days is a... It's like a purification process where the world can be uh, as if it, the world was being dunked in a mikvah uh, in a ritual bath and could be born anew and clean. Uh, the word yikom in this, uh, yikum in this, in this uh, uh, verse is difficult. It's a hapex logomenon, which is a fancy way of saying it's the only time the word is, is used uh, in Tanakh. But from context, it seems to be uh, straightforward that God is going to live everything Sorry, God is going to wipe out everything that, that was alive. Noach did exactly as the Lord had commanded him. At the end of the previous Aliyah, you'll remember we had these same words, or very similar words, which seem to refer to the building of the ark. Here, I would say, it refers to the loading of the ark. And, and that's religiously significant, because it's one thing to build it, but it's another thing to actually go inside and lock yourself in. That's like putting your money where your mouth is. And I would say Noah is clearly putting his money where his mouth is and where his beliefs are. He really believes that God is going to do what he commanded. Building a ship is one thing, but to get on the ship and then to wait for the world to be destroyed, that's taking it a step farther. V'noach ben sheish me'ot shanav ha'mabul ha'yamayim al-aretz. And Noah was 600 years old when the cataclysm when the cataclysm came in water upon the earth. Uh, that's 100 years between the time that he had his children till the destruction of the world, although tradition has it that he built the uh, ark for 120 years to give enough time for people to repent, even though not a single person did. That's a tradition, uh, the 120 years is a tradition which ties the sin of the generation of the flood to the sins and the punishment of the Bnei Elohim, where God said man will only live 120 years. Although, as I said before, I, I think that these are two sins altogether, that the sin of the Bnei Elohim is very, very different from the sin of the flood, which I mentioned in the Sidrat of Bereshit. And Noah entered the ark with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. 
Did I read that right? And Noah entered the ark with his sons and his wife, his own wife, right? And his son's wife, son's wives with him because of the cataclysmic waters, meaning because of the flood. Ebenezer notes that it hasn't actually started raining yet. So, so the verse means from the fear of the oncoming cataclysm. Although more, some uh, commentators are more critical of, uh, of Noah and say that he himself really wasn't ready to go in until it actually started raining. Although I'm not sure uh, there's place for that criticism, but it's possible. Um, it could be just that this chapter jumps around uh, chronologically uh, quite a bit, which means that, uh, and, and that may be some of the reason for some of the repetition in this in this uh, Aliyah. I think that what the verse is hinting to, as I said before, is that Noah's family sort of had to be coaxed into the flood because notice the verb is vayavo Noah, and he came, not they came. He came in, and they then, you know, followed with him. The next two verses, 8 and 9, are a bit awkward since verse 8 begins with a subordinate clause, and the predicate upon which that clause is subordinated only comes in verse 9. So I'll read both verse 8 and 9 together, and then rearrange the translation a bit. Min ha-behemah ha-torah, min ha-behemah she-renena torah, min ha-of, v'chol ha-sher-romes al ha-damah, shenayim, shenayim, ba'u el-noach, el-ha-teva, zacharu nukeva, kasher tziva, Elohim et noach. In pairs, the animals came to Noah, shenayim, shenayim, ba'u el-noach, and they came to the ark from the pure animals and from the impure animals and from the birds, and from all the creatures that crawl on the earth, just as God had commanded Noah. Uh, there are two possibilities. That is, what is the commandment? I mean, God is talking about the animals coming, and then he says, as God commanded Noah. So on one hand, you could say the commandment means that Noah had to go out and collect all the animals, and that's what he did. But the way it reads, it seems to be that the animals all come on their own, and that Noah was therefore commanded to bring them into the ark, and that was his commandment. This may explain why... Uh, the verse brings back the universal name of God. Notice that it says, Zachar um, unkeva uh, kasher tziva Elohim et Noach. Because God doesn't make covenants with animals, and since this verse is focusing on the animals, what it means is that he changed their nature so that Noach would be able to fulfill his obligation to bring them inside. Uh, this would mean something like the way that God controls the instincts of animals, like birds flying south for the winter, or the fact that the really cool fact that monarch butterflies all return to a single mountain in South America in order to start the next generation. Um, and therefore, God here changes their instinct to all come to Noah in order to make sure that they will survive the coming cataclysm. We could say that this change in nature was a miracle, or you could just say that nature and, and instinct is really just controlled and consistent miracle that God places into the very DNA of, of uh, his creatures. And it was at the seven-day period, which means at the end of this period, that the waters of the cataclysm came to the earth, and not just in rain, as we will see now, but the earth was hit from not only from above, but from below as well. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th of the month, on that day, all the wellsprings of the great abyss cracked open, uh, 
and the heavens opened up. The word arubot, the, 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 the tahom means the deep waters from below, and it means all of the, uh, you know, the wellsprings, the, the way that, uh, that, um, water and rivers are fed from beneath. The word arubot in the heavens can either mean a window or storage spaces, but the word is probably better felt than, than translated literally. It, it gives one, it makes one feel that as if the waters were building up and building up until God finally opened up uh, the door, so to speak, and it all came whooshing down. I'm not sure why the Torah repeats his age here. Perhaps the Torah wants to emphasize that there was no delay at all, uh, which would explain the use of the seemingly redundant phrase here, Bayom Hazel, on this day, meaning the day that God told Noah the rains would come is exactly the day that it started to rain, and that was probably the very day that Noah, no doubt, told the people that the floods would come, which means his prophecy was proven to be 100% true. Rashi cites two rabbinic possibilities for which month is this second month, the seventh day, the seventeenth day of the second month. So what is the second month? The first being Cheshvan, which would mean that the year starts from the universal Rosh Hashanah of Tishrei. And the second opinion says that the second month is Er, which would mean that the year starts with, uh, the Jewish national, uh, first month of Nisan. Rashi, if you read him carefully, seems to prefer Cheshvan. Uh, meaning the first month is Tishrei. And this probably uh, is true because the whole story is about the universal destruction of the world, which should have universal Rosh Hashanah. However, in Second Temple literature from Qumran and otherwise, it, it becomes quite clear that the people then thought that it was talking about Er, and that seems correct to me, because every use of month in the Torah is really from Nisan, and some are demonstrably so, and I think it's best to say that the entire Tanakh works on one system. And it rained on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. As we will see in the next Aliyah, it looks like it rained for 40 days and 40 nights before the floodwaters became so great that the ship was lifted off the ground. It's possible. Uh, we will see that the waters actually continue to rise after the 40-day mark because of all of the wellsprings and groundsprings that are broken open. Uh, and that it actually continues to rise and increase for 150 days. Rashi cites a nice midrash that says that the flooding was slow, and that it took 40 days for the ship to be lifted up enough to be carried away, which would give people another chance to repent. And you might think that their penitence, which is prompted by the rain starting, would not be good, but no, God would have accepted it, even though it came under the fear of actual rain falling, but you know what, nobody did penitence anyway, so God didn't have to accept any penitence. On that very day, Noah came, Noah entered the ark, that is, along with Shem, Ham, and Yefet, along with Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them. The phrase has an eschatological overtone, which means the final days, the days of judgment, the days when the wicked die, the wicked people die, and and the good survive. This is a term that's used in messianic uh, prophecies. It's also used in Passover and the Exodus because there's that sense of um, you know a death to the wicked and God intervening in history to allow only those who deserve to survive. Kanaf. 
they, along with all the wild animals, according to their species, or perhaps it means every kind of animal, and every kind of domesticated animal, and every creepy crawly that crawls on the earth, meaning invertebrates, bugs, you know, that like, and all kinds of flying creatures, which would seem to include locusts and like, and winged birds. Some of the details and some of the repetition are a bit hard to work out. If I wanted to go midrashic, um, I would say that God uh, seems to be excluding non-winged birds for those that need to go on the ship, perhaps because penguins and other non-winged birds, uh, like the fish, can handle things on their own. But uh, that may be uh, reading too much into uh, what the text is trying to say. I want to point out again that according to uh, a rabbinic literature, the emphasis on the word liminehu doesn't mean every kind of animal, but means only animals that didn't deviate from procreating with their own kind. That is, didn't go against God's desires, which he emphasized in Genesis, that each species stay within its uh, uh, specialization. And that's, I think, what the verse may mean here. And they came to Noah and to the ark and pairs from all flesh that had the breath of life. That probably includes, uh, or, or comes to exclude, uh, uh, or perhaps it comes to exclude fish, which do not actually breathe life, so to speak. That is, they don't process uh, oxygen through breathing. Uh, at least the way mammals and that like do. Vabaim zachar nukeva mikol basar ba'o kasher tziva oto Elohim vayizgor adonai ba'oto. And there's a certain amount of repetition here. And those that came, came male and female from every flesh, meaning every type of animal came, just as God had commanded him, meaning commanded Noah, which again seems to refer to Noah bringing them into the ark and not him going out and collecting them. They came on their own and he processed them. And the Lord, which again returns to, that is the Elohim command this, that is command the, 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 the keeping alive of species, the, the making sure that they survive and that they're loaded on, but the Lord, returning the covenantal personal name for God, the Lord shuts him in. Uh, the language of Ayizgor Adonai Ba'ado, that the Lord shut him, that is Noah and, and obviously his family and the animals in, recalls the words which were used by the closing up, Ayizgor Basar Tachtav, that he closed up man's flesh when his rib was extracted to make the woman, and uh, the fact that she's called an Ezer Kinegdo. Um, I, I think, uh, again, we have shades of the language of creation, and, and what we're trying to say is, that this is the second creation process, since the first one ultimately ultimately fails. Um, perhaps that what God is saying, why does it say God closed up? Why did it say Noah closed the door? So maybe God is saying, uh, hinting to the idea that Noah couldn't bring himself to close up the ship. Maybe he's hoping against hope that there was still a chance that someone, anyone, would come in and say, please save me. But at some point, perhaps right before the waters rose high enough to sweep the ship away, God closed things up. Or perhaps what it means is that God created a miracle and ensured the seaworthiness of a ship, which, you know, according to, you know, compared to modern standards, was probably a pretty flimsy vessel, and he made it strong enough to withstand the cataclysm of water, which was now to come.